Hello, coaches. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Today, my guest is John Roddick, Director of Tennis at the University of Central Florida. I was John's counterpart at the University of Oklahoma for seven years, and I got to witness his approach to running a college tennis program. He has coached in the junior academy space, the pro ranks, but has spent the majority of his coaching career in the college coaching world. During his time as the head men's coach at the University of Oklahoma, he led the team to three consecutive NCAA finals, winning Big 12 titles and many other awards along the way. He is now in the process of attempting to build a similar list of accomplishments at UCF. In this podcast, John discusses how he went about building the program at OU and provides advice to coaches as to what they should prioritize when taking over a new program, how to build upon any early successes they may enjoy, and lots of other great insights. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Coach John Roddick, thanks for coming on the ITA College Coaches Podcast. Hey Dave, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I know you're you're not short on opinions, so I'm excited <laughs> to get into lots of your opinions on various different topics today. So I'm going to just uh, take you back a little bit to, to your early days of, of coaching, playing. Obviously, you're extremely successful junior player. I'm pretty sure you were top 10, top five in the world. Amazing college player, four-time All-American. Um, you obviously had lots of ties to the Pro Tour, USTA. I know you had opportunities outside side of tennis as well. So why college tennis? Why did you head to, to Florida State shortly after graduation to start your college coaching career? Uh, I don't know. I, playing, when I played, I think it was the most fun I ever had playing tennis. Um, when I showed up at Georgia, you know, frankly, I was a little burned out. I mean, we were, we were under a lot of pressure um, to succeed and you, and you sort of felt like a failure if you didn't uh, make it on the tour, just the way our, our system was set up. I don't know if that was intended or if we just, we just took it that way. I mean, we're, you know, we're 17, so we don't really know what we're doing. And, you know, so getting to Georgia was almost like a relief and I started having fun playing again. So, um, and then, you know, from the coaching aspect, it was, you know, you, you, why not be involved in the, in the part of the game that you, that you really loved and really enjoyed. Yeah. So, so what was it about college coaching that, that you enjoyed so much? Um, well, I think, I think the dynamic, I think one of the things that, that helps college players the most, and I think it helps the coaches is the, is the dynamic between the players aren't paying you as a coach and, you know, the universities are, so you can actually run your team for the most part, uh, how you think you need to run it. And none of those decisions can impact you financially. Whereas, like when I ran my academy, you know, obviously if I discipline somebody or, or come down harder on somebody than what they think or they disagree, you know, you're always walking on eggshells because, you know, for like in our academy, if a player left, that would be, you know, that could be three or four thousand dollars in revenue every month. And so it was, you know, you're always worried in the back of your mind, you know, you, you enjoy coaching, you want to do it, but you also, you know, want to make a living, too. So. Um, I always felt like that was backwards because you felt like sometimes you couldn't really do what you felt like you needed to do. And then that was the same on the, when I coached pros on the tour is the same, the same thing. I mean, they're paying your salary. So you, you sometimes didn't have the ability to make independent decisions where in, in college you, you can really, you know, just cut through all that and, and do what you think is right. 
Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, to talk a, a little bit about that experience in the pro tour. I mean, you you obviously uh, as an assistant coach of Florida State and then at Georgia. I mean, at Georgia, you you helped them to an NCAA title, runner up. Um, you obviously would have had your your pick of head coaching jobs probably shortly after that. So, why did it make sense to you at that time to step away to become you know an ATP tour coach? Yeah, I mean, part of it was that was the the timing is when Andy, uh, my brother was was really starting to break through, um, you know. So there was a part where I helped him some when he was not on the road. So he would, you know, use our academy and use our players to practice with. So I would help him out quite a bit when he was home. Whenever his coach, because you know the tour coach don't always live in the same city, so there was a lot of weeks a year where he needed, you know, he just needed some structure and help, um, you know, just to to train. And so we were able to provide that. And then, um, you know, so that's really why I think it was just the timing. And, and also I was pretty young and I, you know, I, I felt like I could go out and, and do more. And I felt like I might have to wait too long to be a head coach. Cause even when I was at Georgia, I think I was 23 or 24. And mm-hmm. so I felt like head coaching was still down the, down the path. And I figured either path I went, I could still become a head coach if I, you know, if I wanted to. And obviously we all know how how hard it is to get the jobs in the interview process. And, you know, you never know what an administrator is going to hear or think. And, you know, so some jobs you think you might be a great fit, they don't even call you, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's just one of those, you know, but in college, that, that can be the same when you're an assistant going anywhere. You don't know sometimes why you got the job or why you didn't, you know, I feel like when I got to Oklahoma, I mean, obviously you, I feel like helped me quite a bit. So I, I thank you for that. You're and, very welcome. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I've been out of it for a while and, and I'd even applied for some mid majors and they didn't even call me, mm-hmm. but then I end up getting Oklahoma. So it's just, I think as, as college coaches, we all understand, you know, that it's the, the hiring process we don't really have a lot of control over. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, uh, you know, but that's why I did that at that time. I just felt like I was too young and, and I was gonna have to wait too long. And, and, you know, frankly, back then assistants didn't make, we didn't make very much at all. Mm. I mean, I know we, we still complain about that, but it's, it's way better now than it was, <laughs> than it was. I think I was one of the higher paid assistants and I was making 30,000 a year. Right. Um, so it's, it's not that sustainable, you mm-hmm. know, as you, as you become older. Right. So you don't regret that decision at all. I mean, it made, made sense to you at the time and it still makes sense to you looking back. Yeah. I think it, it complicated my life, you know, running a business and running an academy and, and doing all that, there's a lot more that goes into that than I think being a college head coach, mm-hmm. um, just from a time standpoint. And cause you're, you're on the core, you, you, you're, you're, you can end up being a one man shop from a business office to, uh, media to, you know, on the court. And that's what is hard to avoid in that. And so it's, it's, it, I definitely didn't pick the, the easier path, I think from a time standpoint, but it, it, it worked out fine. Mm. So, so did your, time away then from the college games. So with, with your academy coaching pro players, did it change the way you view player development and, and what are some lessons you learned from your time on the tour coaching player, you know, pro players uh, right. running your academy that, like you said, you, you chose kind of the harder path there. So what lessons did you take away from all those experience? And now when you returned to college coaching in 2009, were able to apply all these new lessons. Yeah, I don't think much of it had to do with player development. I think there's a lot of good coaches in, in college and there's a lot of great coaches in, you know, in the academy side or junior or or pro side. I, mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, from that standpoint, I mean, there's good and bad everywhere. And, and so I don't think the on the court stuff was really where I learned, you know, one difference or another. I think what I the, the thing that made me better 
by not becoming a head coach was the recruiting. I was able, we, we ended up having a lot of the top players. So all of our, you know, we'd have 10 kids, five to 10 kids a year going to the top schools out of our academy. So every coach would have to kind of go through me to, to talk to the, the players. And mm-hmm. so I was able to see how these guys recruited and it was, it was eye opening at the time. <laughs> um, I mean, some of these guys were just animals as far as the way they were. I mean, they were everywhere. They were calling nonstop. They were, you know, it, it just taken recruiting. And, and I came from an era as a player, maybe towards the tail end where, you know, you had the four schools that had won national titles, I think from 77 to, to when Illinois won there for, I think maybe what was that 2003 or mm, four, right. Um, only four schools that won a national championship. So the, the landscape was completely different than what it is now. And so when I was the assistant at Georgia, I was on the tail end of that. And, you know, we would just get players, you know, I mean, I know we recruited hard in it, but it was, it was just different. And so I know coach Diaz, we've talked about it as far as having to adjust and, you know, on the recruiting side, it's just been, um, you know, guys like Craig Tiley and Matt Canole, um, you know, those guys really started changing how you recruit. And, and I saw that and, I don't think I would have been very successful recruiting had I not actually done the academy because I was able to, you know, kind of have a front row seat or behind the behind the scenes look at how all these guys operate. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely use that more than anything else. Mm. So, but besides just kind of the, the constant contacts, just staying on top of recruiting at all times, was there, uh, you know, and seeing it from the other side, seeing what these these coaches were doing, but was there anything else about the recruiting process that that really stood out to you? Maybe it's, um, you know, something like how much you engage with the parents or don't engage the type of, uh, you know, things that that really resonate with recruits. I mean, is there any tips that you could provide coaches as to what successful recruiting now looks like? Yeah, I, I think you have to to be yourself. I mean, it's, it's, everyone's got different styles and, and it's changed on me now with even social media. Um, you know, whereas I, I probably would have been considered one of the coaches that was in more contact with, with players or as much as possible. Um, you know, especially back, we all remember the, the once a week phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like in that time I, I made sure I didn't miss a week. I, you know, I would do the, the home visits as, as necessary, you know, typically two or three, um, you know, just all those types of things. And now it's like with social media and I'm, that's kind of left me in the dust a little bit, um, where I don't, I, you know, it's just not me. I don't, I'm not mm-hmm. on social media. Um, yes, we share so, similar opinions about social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a tough, I mean, that yeah. environment is a tough environment and I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't really care to necessarily be a part of all that. So, um, you know, so I've had to adjust a little bit and make sure I'm, you know, I, I focus on the parents a lot of times in the very beginning and, and when they're comfortable, I think it, you know, then you can, you know, focus your attention on the, on the player, because if it's not a good fit, you, you know, you want to find out early and usually you'll find that out, uh, by dealing with the parents and, and, you know, I, I've just, I've also learned how to move on. I used to just go after the player regardless if they were, you know, if they were really good and I felt like they weren't, you know, going to cause too many problems, but now I've, you know, I, I've passed on players because just from a, you know, just through experience, you recognize the patterns and you're like, this is going to be a, a tougher fit than, you know, if you want to do this for a really long time, you know, you've, you've got to have that mentality, I think, to, to try to make your life, you know, and your team, how you want it and not how others are telling you to do it. Mm-hmm. So what are some warning signs you might look for now? I mean, and, and kind of trust your instincts. I mean, what are those behaviors or, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, 
I, I don't know that it's the same for everybody because you know some things that bother one coach might not bother another coach. I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the ones that need attention and constantly, you know, and, and I call it like the dog and pony show in recruiting. You know, if you have to start doing that for me, like those aren't those aren't going to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're we're just very straightforward. You know, just kind of come in, do your job. I'm going to do my job great. They know that I'll always have their back. Um, but it's that, you know, I don't know when, when they crave the attention, I just, my personality, I'm not going to do well with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's the the parent, usually it's the same. And so I just, so those, like, I will actually just, you know, sometimes just pull out of the recruiting on that and, um, you know, focus on the other recruits that we have. I think that for me is like the number one red flag for me now. And, you know, social media is a little different, um, you know, cause you can kind of see it just by looking at social media. I mean, just cause I'm not on it, like in posting doesn't mean I don't look at it for, our, I mean, I'll look at it for the recruits and see what they're up to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can learn a lot and you know, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing what people post. <laughs> it's yep. going to be public, but, uh, you know, so you just start looking out for those signs and, you know, you just want people that are going to fit with, with your program and your personality. Um, it doesn't mean you don't, you always have to adapt some obviously, but you just don't want to have these big, clashes and personality that that can lead to trouble sure so going back to you know your kind of return to to college coaching 2009 at at ou so you know obviously i was there i'd been there a year um it was it was pretty obvious to me that you were going to do an amazing job there but you inherited you know a few good players there but there was no real sign that the team was destined for a run to the quarterfinals that year you obviously added a few key players that that helped but what else do you believe you brought to that squad or that program you know in that first year to help them achieve beyond uh, a level they they probably you know were talent wise and um you know like i said took them to the quarterfinals the ncaa tournament that year yeah that was a really fun year um probably one of my most you know memorable and if i had to pick years that are some of my favorite that would be right up there maybe at the top Mm -hmm. um I think what, what helped, I think Sylvia, the assistant who I ended up keeping, had a good relationship with some of the better players, like you mentioned, that were on the team. Because we had three really good players on that team that were already there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they hadn't reached their potential, but they were really good college players or, or could be. Um, and then and then we had Andre Diascu, who was just a, a great leader. And he and, the, and these guys were hungry to be coached. I mean, they, they wanted to be worked with. They wanted, you know, th- so I think it was just someone saying, you know, hey, I believe in you. You can do this. Um, it, it's hard work, but it's not that hard. You know, if you just let all these little mental hurdles get out of the way, uh, you know, we can do this. And they, you know, they, they really responded well. And, and, you know, I know at times they thought we were maybe doing too much fitness or too much this, but then they started winning, you know, and, and winning will, will create excitement and, and then they wanted to do it. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that was one of those things where you look back and, you know, in the midst of it, you're, you're thinking, okay, I'm making a big difference. And I, I look back right now, like we, we, we had a lot of things really go right for us too. Um, you know, from a, like a standpoint, I didn't realize how, how valuable Sylvie was with that team, um, you know, to make that transition, mm-hmm. you know, so, and, and then keeping him, which isn't something that, that happens very often when a new coach comes in, they usually don't end up, right. you know, keeping the assistant. I, I, 
had talked to numerous people about the job. And, you know, really when I took the job, I had, I didn't know Silvio at all. I had no plans of keeping him. <laughs> and, and he, you know, usually those guys, when you come in, you don't even see them, you know, they don't need, they end up not coming in because they think they're not going to be hired. Whereas, you know, Silvio was showing up every day from work. Like, you know, here I am coach. Like, what do you need me to do? And I was like, it's like, wow, this guy, you know, this is, this is impressive. Yep. You know, and then it, and it dawned on me after about three weeks there and I was looking at my list and I, and I didn't put a huge focus at that time like on finding an assistant coach quickly because we, we still had a lot of the summer and you know some of the jobs already changed over so i wasn't in a huge hurry and and i was sitting there i just dawned on me i'm like the guy that's best for the job is sitting next door mm-hmm. and he's already right there he's got his lunch in his office and he's recruiting <laughs> for, for, and thinking he's not even going to be here you know and so i just asked him if he wanted to stay and so that's that was probably the you know the biggest part and i think with andre and johnny and some of those guys that you know they just wanted to listen and be coached i mean that, that was probably one of the teams that did what I asked them to do, like to, without questioning anything. Um, and they really, they really responded and did well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, you know, when guys really buy in, whether you're right or wrong as a coach, if they buy in, they're going to get better, right. you know, period. And so that was the, the, the fun thing with that is they just really bought into what we were trying to do and, and had great attitudes and, you know, they had a special year. Yeah, definitely. No, it was fun to, to, to witness that and, and, uh, see, see that run and, and see the improvements in the team. But you, you, you know, you really capitalized on that success then, you know, that you achieved in that first year, you ended up winning several big 12 titles, three runner up finishes at the NCAA championships, uh, number one ranking 2014 coach of the year awards, lots of accolades. So how can a, a coach ensure they capitalize on any success they have in their programs early in their tenure? Or is it just a matter of continuing to do you know, what got you there? Because I think sometimes, um, it's, it's sometimes easier maybe to, to climb up there, but it's, it's uh, maybe even more difficult to sustain. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that and and how would you help coaches? It's, it's definitely, you know, I think depending on the place, as, as we all know, in college tennis, there's some places that, you know, whether it's combined with academics, a, a fantastic place period. And, um, you know, they have, you know, whether it's tuition advantages or whatever there is. So there's some places I think it's easier to maintain than, than others. But having said that, I don't think it's ever easy to maintain. You know, I mean, you look at, at what Billy Martin's done at UCLA and, and I don't care if it's UCLA. I mean, what he's done there from a consistency standpoint is just, I mean, it's just mind boggling. Um, you know, I think we would have had a hard time at Oklahoma staying in the top two, three. I mean, I think anybody's going to have a hard time these days. I mean, everybody's <laughs> trying so hard and budgets have, are, are so much bigger or were <laughs> until about six months ago. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hopefully we can laugh about that in a year, but I don't know. But, um, you know, I think it's just, it's just hard period to stay up there. And so, um, you know, we would have been, you know, we would have, we had, you know, Axel Alvarez and, you know, Willie Alcorda and Dane Webb and, and Andrew Harry. We had some, some of the best players in the country. And, you know, I think we would have continued to get those guys, but, um, I think there's always going to be a little bit more of a fluctuation up and down. Um, the ranking a little bit more like college basketball, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and yeah, it did help us, I think, to get there. Like we made our first NCAA final in 14. Um, and then that, that quarterfinal run definitely legitimized us as a, a school where, you know, in a program where players can come in and get better and, and have a good experience. So, you know, I, I thought it was going to take a little bit longer than that, but we, we were able to do it pretty quick. And I've been on both sides of it now. I mean, here at UCF, we're, right. um, you know, it's a little slower, but, it's just the, the, it's just different. I mean, we had actually a very good first year again. That was actually another really fun year. Um, very similar to that. We didn't do as well, 
Um, but I felt like this team, that team really, really overachieved the first year. And we went from, I don't know what we were. I mean, you could probably look it up in the old rank. They didn't even publish the rankings that low. Mm-hmm. And we finished, I think, 29 or something, which was a, a huge jump up for us. Um, and so that kind of re- helped the momentum again. Um, but we didn't have that core that we had at Oklahoma in the beginning. So it, it just t- takes a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to maintain. I think every coach that you talk to, I don't, I don't care where they're at, but they're going to tell you it's hard to, to stay in the top five or four every year. Like it just, those days of doing that every single year, I think are, are long gone. Right. Right. And, and then just in terms of once that program is established, do you, do you think the job changes in, in any way? I mean, is there anything that you're like, you've mentioned in both the first years at OU and, and, and UCF, uh, some of the funnest years and, you know, it's, everything's kind of new, everything's fresh, but then, you know, the years go by and, and, yeah. and maybe it's not as, as fun or fresh, or maybe turns more from, from, you know, becomes more of a, a job, um, you know, kind of thing. But is there, is there any changes you've, you've had to make to sustain that success or is it just, just continue to put your head down and grind away? I, I think not putting the pressure on yourself to, to maintain. I think it, you know, you always have want to have your goals and treating each year as a new year. Um, that, although that's really hard for me right now because we literally have the exact same team again <laughs> you know, so, and we're going to have it again the next year. So it's like, you know, for me to do that, it's, we're, we're more in that, okay, let's see what we can build and how good this team can be. But I, I think it's just, and just finding a good pay. I think at Oklahoma, I, mean, I don't know that what I was doing was sustainable for 20, just from a, literally from a work ethic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I know you saw me sometime. I, I, I mean, I work nonstop mm-hmm. and, you know, went everywhere and, you know, it was, it's crazy. And now I, I try to have a little bit more balance and pace myself because, you know, there was a time where I was like really burned out. Mm-hmm. you know, from it. And, and I was like, this is not sustainable, you know? So you got to find that balance where you can focus on the things that are really, really important to your program. Um, you know, but not feel like you have to be at every single tournament recruiting or this or that. And maybe that's easier once you're established. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's, it, it is a, it's a tough thing. I mean, our, our women's coach at UCF is, uh, I think he's working as hard as I did when I was at Oklahoma and he's doing a phenomenal job, but I always tell him too, like, make sure it's, you know, make sure you can sustain this pace, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a long time. Cause he's young and, and you want to keep, um, keep doing it. But I, I just learned from, from that experience. And then, you know, even my first year here, I, I worked, had to work really hard to, to have a decent year and, and kind of get the program going. So it, it is, I think all coaches can relate to that, but it's, it's also trying to find that balance to, so that you can sustain it. Otherwise, you know, you get burnt out on it. It becomes a very difficult job in a hurry. Yeah, it's it's uh, obviously we we spoke a lot about that, and we we were both burned out around the same time. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, I left completely. You you managed to stay in and regroup and and find that balance. I I, I never could, but um, but now that you've been a, a head coach at, at two different universities, what advice would you have for coaches on on what they should prioritize in their first three months in their new role? Yeah, I think. I, I, I really think the recruiting and, and, the, and then the, the type of, the type of kids you're getting, I think that's, that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest things you can, you can do. I mean, I've been fortunate enough where our budgets have been good. I haven't had to really focus on fundraising too much. I mean, obviously a little more here at UCF than, than at Oklahoma. I mean, you know, at Oklahoma, they didn't really even, you know, they might have you talk to uh, Tim, Tim one time or, you mm-hmm. know, Hey, can you call this guy? But it wasn't anything that we had to really 
focus on ever. Right. Um, you know, so I can't speak to the fundraising as much. I've had to do a little more here, but even, even here, like I've gotten a lot of help, um, you know, where things have been set up for me. And, you know, so I probably do a few more lunches and things like that than I did. But so, you know, I, I think some coaches, they get in there and, you know, I might be skipping a step where they're, you know, I talk about recruiting and, you know, just kind of setting that foundation. And, and I think setting the discipline with the team, like from day one, because once you have it, it's easy to, you know, on the court, as far as what they're doing, it's easy to keep that going. Whereas if you don't establish it, it's, it, it can get very hard. You know, like, oh, now coach wants to establish, you know, wants to be a hard ass. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, that just is not going to work. Whereas if you set that expectation early, um, you know, it, it'll just start taking care of itself after a while. And then you have the upperclassmen, you know, doing some of that, that work for you to help with the, with the younger players coming in. So I think, you know, those two things would be the, the most important, the, the discipline foundation. And then, you know, and then just recruiting. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's, there's no way around recruiting. I mean, it's, if you can do one thing well in this business, that would be it. Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, I worked with you for, for seven years and, and, um, obviously, uh, you know, watched you from a distance, <laughs> watched you up close. Um, and I was always really impressed with how clear you were with your priorities. You, you really identified the individuals that could help your program, whether that was, you know, people outside, you know, kind of stakeholders, um, internal support staff, obviously recruits, but I never felt like you were spinning your wheels. You're working extremely hard. Hard, but there, there seemed to be, you know, purpose behind every action that you took. How did you develop this understanding of what really matters, and how would you encourage coaches to have a similar mindset? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I do feel like that's one of my strengths, but probably to the frustration of, you know, our media department because maybe I ignored their email three <laughs> times. You know, and they're like, "Oh, this guy never responds," and I'm like, "Well, I do, but it just really doesn't matter to me right now." Like, I got. Nine yeah. other things. That's that's part of the burnout thing mm-hmm. too. Is like you know, uh, there's a lot of people in university that they have jobs and they're trying to do their job, and you're not trying to disrespect anything, but at the same time, it's not helping you, you know, and and build your program, and they're they're on your team, and so you know, I try to just talk to people that I know that I'm gonna sometimes look, you know, my priorities are not going to be aligned with theirs at all, mm-hmm. you know, and I just tell them, hey, this is how I am. I, I mean, no disrespect, but if I you know, cause sometimes I'll be like, I'm going to respond to that email. And then I, two days later, I'm like, crap, I haven't done that yet. And, <laughs> but that's just how low it is on my priority list, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, and, and, you know, people can take that as disrespect or, you know, lack of organization or whatever they want to take, you know, from it. I, it, it's okay. Um, but I just try to communicate with those people so they don't get frustrated with you, you know? And, and I always tell them too, like in Oklahoma, it was easy. Cause I said, if, if you really need something, you know, I'm going to be in the office, like, at these times, just, just, you can come down and find me in person mm-hmm. and, and catch me face to face because, you know, and you know how it is when you're traveling and technology has gotten way better too with that stuff. So it's, it's, it, you know, it used to be hard to call back if you had to do something and, you know, it's so expensive. I remember, I think it was Greg Phillips got all over me for my international cell phone bill <laughs> one time. And I'm like, well, I got to call back was, you know, before everyone was using Skype on cell phones and stuff all the time. You had to do it on your computer. And, you know, that was just made it logistically more of a challenge. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's all those things like that. But I, it is just identifying that. And I, I guess just not being afraid to, you know, if, if somebody in the department gets a little angry with you or, or frustrated, you, you just kind of have to be okay with that because you know what your priorities are. and. Um, you know, and it's not that you're trying to ignore him, but you can only do so much. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So you're not trying to please everybody. It's, it's on your list somewhere, but you're, you're very clear yeah. on what you're prioritizing each day and each week and, and each semester, I guess, as well. But I, I felt it was the same, even with, with kind of from a player development, uh, perspective, you, you had a very clear, uh, vision for, for, you know, how your players, um, you know, could or, or should play and, and related that to your time on the pro tour as, as well in, in terms of, you know, kind of building the, the way they, they hit their forehand, say, um, can you talk a little bit about kind of your, your player development process and, and what you think has, has had an impact on, on some of those college players you've seen improve the most during, you know, your time coaching them? Yeah, I think you're, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're right. I, I don't, I feel like you can focus on like the two or three or four things that are really going to help a player and all the other stuff is just noise, mm -hmm. you know? And if you eventually get to it, obviously when I was coaching Andy, you know, there, there comes a time where we're not working on his serve at all. You know, he's, he's literally just, you know, hitting 10 to 20 serves a day just to keep his arm, you know, loose and, and kind of in, in rhythm, but we're not working on it. I mean, we, we weren't, I mean, what are you going to work on? You know, he has the, you know, the biggest serve in the world. He, he places it well. His second serve is the best in the world. You know, it's, it, I, I wish he would have served more forehand on second serve sometimes. That was the only thing, but that's just, you know, hit it here, not here. Mm -hmm. And we would butt heads on that all the time. You know, I mean, I watched Murray last night. I mean, the guy hits a kick serve to Murray's backhand and Murray just crushes it cross court. I'm like, Oh my God, I've seen that like a million times, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, so just, but we're not working on, on that stuff, you know, so we were able to get into more detail and, and stuff like that. But then, you know, Andy's forehand, it would, he, you know, everyone thought he had this huge forehand and it would go, but it, it would come and go sometime. He right. didn't always feel confident in that. So there was a lot of times where we were just working on just basic forehands, like you would do with a 13 year old or a 14 year old where I'm getting a bucket of balls and I'm feeding and he's working on racket speed and spin and, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I just try to stick to the, the, two or three things that I know are going to make the guy better. And then if there's, you know, and, and you also, everyone, we, you know, we were all fragile as tennis players mentally. I mean, I don't care if you're the best, you know, th there's always that self doubt because you're always by yourself, you know, no one else is going to really help you out very much. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's always that doubt. And so letting them, you know, Hey, what bothers you the most about the game or what, what do you want to work on the most? You know, it might not even be a, it could be a strength, but just so they have that, that input as well, you know, and that, that, cause that's where their mind is. If something's bothering them and we're not addressing it, you know, you're going to have a big problem, you mm -hmm. know, from a confidence standpoint. So, you know, we don't always know what that is. I mean, you wouldn't think that Andy's forehand would be the one that, that bothered him, you know, sometimes and it, and it did, right. You know, and so we'd have to work on it sometimes. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and just kind of switching gears a little bit, but you know, around the, the future of college tennis, like we mentioned there, budgets are, are, are changing right now and, and may for, for quite some time. But, uh, you know, I know you're, you're, you know, really interested in, you know, history. You're, you're interested in, in the future. You're, you're very up to date on, on current affairs. But, you know, do you have concerns about the future of college tennis, college athletics? And, and if so, what action do we need to be taking right now to find solutions? Yeah. I mean, those are hard questions. I, I've never been one to think that our game from a, at a college level is in real trouble. Um, you know, that you, I think like any sport, I mean, you even see football programs come and go sometimes and, you know, the UAB, I mean, you'll see it cause of cost, you know? And so, you know, I felt like the only reason before, let's say pre pandemic. So I'll, I'll, I'll preface it where I'm talking mm -hmm. uh, a little bit in the past here, you know, it was typically, you know, we, we, we'd pretty much gotten through the title nine, 
you know, cuts and, and every sport had gotten through that. I mean, you know, tennis, I mean, we like to complain about how many programs we lost, but we actually did men's tennis did pretty well right. through all that, you know, overall. I mean, you look at men's gymnastics and wrestling and, you know, some of these other, I mean, I think you remember at OU and they were, they were struggling to even keep that a, a D one sport because mm-hmm. they had so few programs. So, you know, we, we are lucky, you know, that we're sitting there. I don't know where we're at. We were at 220 something. That was a few years ago. I don't know where we're at today, but, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're still in pretty good shape. And I think the thing we have going for us is that we're really not that expensive. And our numbers, if you're, if it does end up being a, if they cut for budget and then they got to even out for title nine, our numbers aren't that big. So it's not a, it's not necessarily a huge help, um, to cut tennis. And I think that's just the reality, whether, you know, some people look at it that way or, or not. I think sometimes we're a little, little more scared, but I think, you know, like the Ohio state model or the big 10 model, I mean, not to single out Ohio state, but one of the, um, you know, those schools that have 30 plus sports, you know, I think mm-hmm. that model is, is going to go, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of sports and athletes and coaches and, you know, tutors. And yep. I mean, it's just a huge, huge expense. I mean, it's not just your, your tennis budget, you know, cause I don't even know what our budget looks like. Cause I don't manage it for tutoring, for sports medicine, for, mm-hmm. you know, all these other things. And so I think you're going to see a lot more schools go down to more of the sec model where you're, you're going more towards 20 sports or at Oklahoma. What do we have there? Dale? 19. 20. 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's going to go that direction. And obviously tennis, just, I think any sport, any Olympic sport, uh, could be casualties of that. And, and, you know, we're going to be no exception there. Um, you know, so I think that's just the reality of, you know, I think that the, the sports that have really good facilities that they've just invested in and have been investing in, I think you're going to be a little bit better off, but I think, um, you know, I'm, I've just seen how we we've been traveling lately. I think there's, you know, there's probably, I, I've run a business, you know, in, in tennis and then, you know, come to the collegiate side at Oklahoma. And, you know, there's some things, if you're a private businessman, you probably wouldn't be doing. Right. You know, yeah. some, and I think every coach, if they're honest with themselves, that, that has, have those kind of budgets would, would agree with that statement. So I think there's going to be a little bit, I don't think it's going to be necessarily a bad thing, but I think we all need to get back to the basics a little bit. You know, I mean, do we need to stay at the Marriott downtown or, or does a, you know, as a comfort in or a Hampton Inn do the job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I think we need to get back to a little bit more of a reality check on on the finances of things. And and you know, I think as it gets back to normal, you know, like anything, we we have short memories here, uh, especially in America. And you know, I think we will get back to normal, but there is going to be there, there's going to be some carnage along the way, which we've already we've already seen quite a bit of it. And I don't think it's because of tennis. I think it just. I think it's going to be whatever makes sense for each department, you know, whether it's wrestling or tennis or golf or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. I mean, you know, if you're a, a program in Northern Michigan and you're going to cut your men's golf, would anyone be surprised? Because you can during the school year, you can play what, you know, two months or three months right. of golf, you know, so it's yep. just, that's just common sense, mm-hmm. you know, or even our sport, if you don't have indoor and you're up way up in the North and you're leasing courts from a club, I, I, I'd be a little bit worried. You know, cause there's, there's, it's a very easy thing to cut when you're, when you, you don't have to really divest any facilities. Yeah. And then we've seen that a little bit, um, a, a lot of these, uh, programs in, in their release when they're saying they're canceling the program, a, a lot of them have mentioned facilities and, um, yeah, as you're talking about reduction of sports, I mean, we saw yesterday, William and Mary, uh, went from 23 sports to, to 16. Fortunately, ten, tennis survived. Um, but I think you're right. We're going to continue to see that. I even saw a report this morning that UC Riverside, um, uh, is talking about just canceling their entire 
athletic department, not just uh, a handful of sports. And, and that's, uh, that's the other thing, you know, around the, the university system as a whole and, and people moving more online as, as, as uh, tuition becomes more expensive. And, um, yeah. You know, do we see universities closing? I believe one closed earlier this summer in, in Illinois. Do we see athletic departments shutting down? It, it's it's all very concerning. But but based on what I your your answer there, uh, you're saying don't don't overreact that we're going to be okay. Is that what I can glean? <laughs> I, I think so. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I say that, and then you know, who knows? There could be three programs cut next week. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just. I mean, I I don't think we're any different than a lot of businesses around the country. I mean, I know just in my area where I live, I've seen three restaurants close. Um, and you know, we don't have that. It's a newer area. Like there's not that many restaurants, mm. you know, where to see three clothes like that. And so, um, you know, I just don't think we're, I, I think we're just like the rest of the country as far as, uh, as far as an industry goes, I think we're, we're all hurting. And obviously we rely on, on the football revenue. And if that's, if that's stagnant right now and, and fans aren't allowed to go to games, um, there's going to be problems, you mm-hmm. know? And so it, it's almost like that we want to do something about it, but I, you know, other than, really watching your budget and, you know, not going over. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I mean, I've gone over uh, before. And so I think we got to be very responsible as far as, um, you know, as far as that goes. And hopefully that slows down the arms race a little bit, because I think it does get a little, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily good for the student athlete, you know, when they come in and they're 18 and they're treated like a, you know, like a, like, like a superstar, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's something to be to earning it a little bit and, and not, not, you know, going first class with everything. I think it's until you've really earned it, you know? So I think we just got to get back to basics. And I think if we can all be responsible, um, you know, you're going to, all you can do right now is it's like poker is just give yourself the best chance. Um, you know, and I think overall we'll be okay, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I I see a lot of schools doing what William Mary did going down to 16, 18 sports. I think that's going to be really, really common. And, we're going to lose a lot of programs just like every other. I mean, I guarantee you every other sport is having the same conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I said this to, to somebody the other day, just around this um, idea of, of going back to, and this is maybe just you and I are getting old and, and we start saying things like, remember the good old days. <laughs> but but when, you know, I remember playing at, at Fresno State, mid-major program. Uh, it's in California. So we were able to, you know, access some, some uh, pretty amazing matches within a three, four hour drive. But, you know, we strung our own rackets. We got four pairs of shoes. We got some t-shirts. Um, and, and I could not have had a more amazing experience a more enjoyable experience. And I look at some of the student athletes recently and, and they seem miserable uh, despite, uh, you know, having all of, of these, you know, bells and whistles, as many shoes as they want, you know, a manager to, you know, deal with their, their every need. And it's like, there is something to be said for, for, you know, scaling it all back. And maybe our student athletes will be a little happier with that. I don't know. I'm, like I said, maybe yeah. I'm just getting old. I, I, I think there is some of that. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned the racket string because I've, I've used that in recruiting. Do you want to string your own rackets? You know, it's like, uh, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's funny. It made me, made me laugh. Alcorta was the one, really Alcorta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it just made me chuckle. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason, you know, we, we I mean, it, I, I felt like I was lucky at Georgia and I think, you know, it was pretty similar to how it is now. I mean, we stayed at nice places, but we didn't, we didn't go as much. I mean, we didn't travel as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't go to the pro tournaments. We didn't, you know, I think so that that's where our budget limitation was. And, and, you know, now it's kind of like, you can almost do whatever, 
um, you know, and, and the opportunity they have is, is there's really nothing to be upset about. Um, if you're a, if you're a student athlete right now, I think in, in most sports, I mean, it's, you, you're getting, you know, a heck of an opportunity and your school paid for. And, you know, and, and let's not forget a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, student athletes get into schools that they wouldn't have gotten into otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that we should never lose sight of that either. I mean, why, why do schools make those exceptions, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, um, you know, so we, we, they need to be appreciative of that, that, I mean, I know I am, I mean, I, I didn't have the grades to get into Georgia at the time. I was probably just short. Um, but the fact that I didn't even have to, you know, maybe you can, you can focus on your SAT and get the score up, or maybe you can, I don't know. But you know, the fact that I didn't have to worry about it, I remember even thinking at the time, I'm like, man, like all the, all three schools that I'm looking at, I don't have to worry about the test. I just have to take it and do decent, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's such a relief, you know, as a, as a high school junior or senior that you don't, you, you know, all your friends are stressing out about it mm-hmm. and all you have to do is show up and not bomb it. You know, so it's like, yeah. So I mean, how lucky are we? Right. Know? But granted, I mean, we put in a lot of time on the court, so that you know, you're bringing something else to the table. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it is. I mean, I, I I don't know how you were at Oklahoma. I mean, I don't I don't remember very many that I that I took to them that weren't some sort of special exemption. Right. Right. Yeah. Not not a ton for sure. Um, but just one last question about this, John. Just around we talked about priorities earlier. And, and so coaches are thinking priorities in terms of, um, you know, player development and recruitment, but, but how would you encourage coaches prioritize the other aspects of their program that may allow them to continue to have a program for decades to come? You, you know what I mean? That they, they, right, it's almost yeah. like they have to shift their, wh- where should they shift some of their priorities here, especially during what we face right now? Yeah, I think that's a, another really good question and probably one that's not my strength. Um, you know, I, I think fundraising is going to become more important than it ever has. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think just managing your budget and, and making sure that you're, you're in line with what the department wants. I think, you know, I think ADs are going to be looking at that a lot closer, uh, than they ever have. And obviously they are right now, but I think once they create that habit and going forward, I, I'm sure in their circles, they're talking about being more responsible too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that, I think the fundraising, if, if anything, um, you know, even if it's 10,000 or, you know, up to 50,000 that you can raise locally, um, I think there's a lot of, you know, the, the fortunate thing in our sport is, you know, typically we have people with some disposable income that are interested in the sport and, um, you know, it's a matter of tapping into that and, you know, and just creating that, you know, with, with a little bit of a stream, because I think if you can financially put yourself in the best position, then, you know, it's like I said before, your, your, your odds of, uh, being around are a lot higher. Um, but if it's a financial drain and then they're looking to cut, then you're obviously on the, on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for that, John. We're, we're going to move into our rapid fire round. Surely I can find a better name for this uh, section of the podcast, <laughs> very, but very original. Very, I know. I know. I'll, I'll give that some work uh, first serve or something. Um, but, but what, what is a book that made a major impact on you as a coach? Uh, I read, what was it? It was the John Wooden one. I've actually got it here somewhere. It's still on my, uh, it's called my personal best by John Wooden. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really good book. I mean, he just talks about, it, I, th- I think it goes to a lot of things like talks about simplifying things and, you know, it, it's really just focusing on the fundamentals and, and how he did that. Um, you know, and built that dynasty out at UCLA that, that really wasn't there, you mm-hmm. know, when he went out there that it wasn't really known for it. And, and, um, it, it was just an incredible book to, to read how he was able to do that back in the, 
you know, back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite drill you do with your players? I think that goes, I don't know. That's, that's, I mean, my, <laughs> I do, but nobody would want to hear it. It's so boring. Um, <laughs> oh, come it's on. just, I, I, I stand there and I'll, and you see me do it where we'll just literally stand there and they'll hit forehands cross court and backhands cross court for, you mm-hmm. know, for a half an hour. And, you know, and, and you know how maybe the word would be angry. I get if they miss too many balls, um, because it's just, a, it's a concentration drill. It's a you know technical thing, but it, it really is a challenge on, on focusing and concentrating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause we can all sit there and if our life depends on it, hit five, four hands in a row, you know, but then all of a sudden I don't say anything and I feed and we miss three out of five, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's, that's why that drill, even though it's, uh, I mean, I actually hate standing there doing it and feeding balls. Um, but I, I just feel like it's such a useful thing to do. Whereas guys, you know, get really focused on that and, and do it. I mean, for me, it's, um, it's not that exciting, but it's, it's, uh, really, really useful. Mm-hmm. Well, it comes back to our earlier point again, everybody's, you know, often searching for the complex and, and again, it's drilling into your priorities. And so can you name one thing you have changed your mind on in recent years, whether that's in coaching or in life? I don't believe you change your mind on anything. So this is, may, might be a terrible <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do. I think it, it, it's different. I mean, I think the, I think you have to, maybe it's not changing your mind necessarily. I think, uh, but changing how you do things sometimes with, and, and kind of adjusting with, with the times, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I look back with some of my Oklahoma teams and, and maybe some of the things we did or said, you know, you, maybe you can't do that now, you know? And, and so you gotta, you have to adjust I mean, right or wrong or whatever anyone's opinion is on it. I mean, we, we live in the university world and we have to operate by those standards, you know, and those standards are constantly changing um, and they're changing quickly. So I think that's where, you know, just, just trying to, to find new ways to, to motivate and, and maybe, you know, I, I'm a little bit more old school. And so, you know, I've had to, whether I agree with it or if I don't agree with it, um, you know, you have to, you have to change you know, and you have to change your mind and, and the way you do things sometimes, because it's not always going to mm-hmm. uh, work out well for you if you don't. Yeah. Very good. Do you, do you have a favorite quote you like? Don't, uh, you know, I, I don't have a favorite quote, but one thing I've been telling my guys lately, the last, cause I've had the same team for, for a while now, for the most part. And, uh, we had some consistency issues and just, you know, buying into, to, you know, making balls and, and not missing. And I finally was telling you, I'm like, you know, I've never seen someone win a point when they miss, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, you know, you miss the first ball or you just make an unforced error, like on an easy rally ball. Like if you don't make the ball, you can't win the point, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, it just getting past that, you know, it's like it, that, that, that's, that I've been saying that over and over for like the last year. So that's, what's like been in my head and getting guys to buy into it where, mm-hmm. you know, it's like banging your head against the wall where you were talking about the 2010 Oklahoma team. I mean, they bought into that concept on day one, right? you know, and then I have guys that maybe were higher recruits or this, and I'm having a hard time getting them to buy into that concept, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, uh, it's funny, but, but that's kind of the, the mantra. And then finally we started buying into it and we started playing better, but, um, you know, that's what we've been really focused on kind of the number one phrase, yeah. you know, we're getting guys like guys. And I, and I know they're making fun of me half the time when they do it, but you know, a guy will miss one in practice. Like you can't win the point if you miss, you know? I know they're, they're taking it out on me and everyone's laughing behind my back, but you know what, it's, it's, if they're having fun with it at my expense, but they're actually doing it, I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we might see that on some UCF t-shirts, uh, whenever yeah, we so get we back. Yeah. Um, and then is, is there one lesson you 
you hope your players have learned by the time they leave your program at UCF? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's partly w- uh, with the times. I think these kids have a great opportunity. Um, you know, if they take charge of of their life and they work hard and they and they do the right things, I, I just feel like they they have an incredible opportunity because I think there's a lot of people out there now that want stuff given to them or they want it easy. They want it, you know, the, that way. And I think if there's a lot of, you know, if you can leave our team and be a, a moderately good self-starter, I think you're going to be incredibly successful, you know, in mm-hmm. tennis, I think you learn that lesson because you, you know, I mean, nothing is ever given to you. They all, the other guys always trying hard. Um, and no matter how good you are, you know, you still have to come out and play that tournament and play each match. And, and we all know how easy it is to lose a tennis match, even when you're the favorite. So I think our, our sport lends itself to, to that, that way of thinking. And, and hopefully when they leave our program, they, you know, they understand they have to go out and make it happen, that it's just not going to be handed to them in life. And, and so I think that's the biggest thing we try to focus on. And we, and we do a lot of talks on that, you know, and, and, you know, I try to get guys to read books on that kind of stuff if they, if they will, you know, in, in their, in their free time. Um, I know all these athletes act like they don't have any, but they, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow they fit in uh, five seasons of uh, uh, Friends or something, yeah. but they've no time. Uh, you know, six hours of teaser yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been uh, been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing your experience and your wisdom with, with the coaches. So uh, thanks for doing this. Well, I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you.